The important thing about it is that it was not two men in a canoe. It was a teamwork effort. When they left Camp River Du Bois to go up the Missouri River, there were likely 50-some-odd people involved in this going up making that voyage. It took a lot of preparation. It took a lot of planning. It took a lot of foresight into seeing what they needed. But all in all, it was a team effort. Everybody had to do what they needed to do or they never would have succeeded. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Rex Maynard works at the Lewis and Clark State Historic Site in Illinois, which is at the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi Rivers. There's a great tower there that you can oversee the confluence area, and it would be well worth going over to take that tour. Rex, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you are a former educator, as I am. What did you teach, and what got you involved with the Lewis and Clark State Historic Site? I've been a volunteer at the State Historic Site since about 2001 when they were gearing up for the Bicentennial Celebration, which happened 2003-2004. I've done several things throughout my life. worked for Frito-Lay as a route business manager. I've been a teacher at Roosevelt High School where I taught social studies. I've worked for both the Cahokia Mounds Historic Sites and the Lewis and Clark State Historic Sites over here in Illinois. currently working as a, a clerk for the county in, of Madison right now. The Lewis and Clark expedition, a very important thing, especially for those of us who live in St. Louis and in Missouri, and really anybody who lives in the Louisiana Purchase area should be thankful to Lewis and Clark for what they did. But what should people remember about the Lewis and Clark expedition? If, if they remember one thing, what would you say that one thing would be? What's important about it? The important thing about it is that it was not two men in a canoe. It was a teamwork effort. When they left Camp River Du Bois to go up the Missouri River, there were likely 50-some-odd people involved in this going up making that voyage. It took a lot of preparation. It took a lot of planning. It took a lot of foresight into seeing what they needed. But all in all, it was a team effort. Everybody had to do what they needed to do, or they never would have succeeded. There were some, what, 35, 40 people on the expedition, something like that? When they left Illinois, there were close to 50 by the time you count the French engagés, the hired French boatmen that took them all the way up to Fort Mandan in North Dakota. So the the number varied through the trip. From Fort Mandan to the Pacific, there were 35 people, including Sakagaway and her son, who was born in February before they left in April for the western part of the expedition. So there was an infant on this expedition. Yes, his name was Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. He was the son of Sakagaway, the Shoshone woman that had been held captive by the Hidasa. And the husband that she was given to St. Charbonneau, he was born February 9th in 1805. And went the whole trip on her back or very close to her. And that's crazy to, to think that you had an infant along that whole 
expedition, and the timing from when they started to when they finished was how long? They left Camp River de Bois on May 14, 1804, and they uh, came back on September 9, 1806. So they were gone about two years, four months, and ten days. Not that you have uh, that memorized. I've been around for a while. Like I said, I've been volunteering here for about 20 years or so. So why the different pronunciations, uh, Sacagawea or Sacagawea? Where did that all start? The Indian lady that we call Sacagawea or Sacagawea, she was born into the Shoshone tribe that lived in the Rocky Mountains in the Idaho, Montana area. Her name there was probably Sacagawea. But when she was 11 years old, she was captured by the Hidatsa Indians, and they took her to their own villages. And there, we believe, they uh, started calling her Sacagawea, which is a close-sounding name, but it has a different meaning in the language. Sacagawea in Shoshone means boat pusher. Sacagawea in the Hidatsa means bird woman. What they called her on the trip, we're not really sure. Most evidence points to the fact that they have a creek that the Lewis and Clark name called Bird Woman Creek. And Clark had a nickname for her. Perhaps he had trouble pronouncing it, but he called her Janie. How did he come up with that? There's some sad but true things. Clark and Lewis were both products of the South, and there were slaves in the South. Both Pomp, which is his nickname for the little boy, and Janie were nicknames that they both applied to slaves oftentimes. Hmm. Interesting. Um, it's an unfortunate thing, but it's the way it was back then. You've been doing this for quite a while as a uh, volunteer and an interpreter, and you have some information about George Shannon, apparently, who was on the trip. He was um, an individual who was the youngest member, as I understand, of the expedition. What else can you tell us about George Shannon? George Shannon got lost a lot. They would go up the river in their keelboat, and they'd send hunters walking up the river, and then they'd meet at a further point and bring the meat, the food that they gathered. And George Shannon ended up getting lost a lot. He was the youngest member, and he started the trip in Pittsburgh. He and John Coulter both started from back there. John Coulter, of course, is a famous, well-known mountain man, the man who's credited with discovering the area of Yellowstone Park which they called Coulter's Hell because of the geysers and hot bubbling waters. George Shannon, later on after the expedition, he became injured, lost part of a leg, became a lawyer and a judge in practice, mostly in Missouri. Did all of the individuals make it back? My recollection of the expedition is that there was one person who died along the uh, journey before they uh, reached the uh, West Coast. Well, that's true. They started out with 50-some-odd men. Then at Fort Mandan, they sent the French engagés back home with the big keelboat. But en route, they had three sergeants, and one of the sergeants passed away probably from appendicitis or some kind of disease. He could have been in the best hospital in Paris or London or anywhere in the world. He still would have passed away. Hmm. So it was not so much due to the trip as it was to his own constitution. They all mourned him greatly. They say nothing but good things about him. You mentioned these big boats. What were those like? What were they made out of? They're mostly made out of wood that's close by. The largest boat was the keel boat, and there's a little bit of controversy about that, whether or not it actually had a keel. But the requirements having a keel was one of the first things that Lewis wrote down when he was writing down specifications. 
but it's not mentioned again that he, that it did have a keel. But it was 55 feet long and about 8 feet wide. It was the largest boat. They had a boat of 20 oars where they could have 20 men that would be rowing it. Now, they didn't just row the boat. They, they, could, they had a sail. They could put up the sail. And when the wind was right, use the wind power. They could pole the boat, take these long poles and stick them in the shallow waters and push the boat along. Of course, they had the rows, the oars, where they could row the boat. And probably the messiest and nastiest one would be they could cordel or pull the boat. They'd tie a rope to the front of the boat, and the men would get out on the shore, walking through the mud and the gunk and the briars and the snake holes, and heave-ho, pull that boat along if there was no other better options. I'm sure that was not their favorite. And you're thinking about the river and the current that is not necessarily in the Mississippi, but going up the Missouri, et cetera, like that. That's pretty harrowing. Yeah, and the current was a good bit slower back then because it has been channeled these days, these That's modern true. days. That's true. And so there were a lot more shallow places than there are now. The boat, the boats would have to be pulled over some very shallow places where the sand would gather. But the Missouri River was in such shape that back then the sandbar could be there one day and not be there the next. As the Missouri River was constantly changing, sweeping the trees off the bank, just the natural process of erosion. That was the keel boat. They had two smaller boats. One was the Red Pierrot, and uh, that's P-I-R-O-U-G-U-E. That word's still used for boats in Louisiana, I believe. And it was about uh, 40 feet long, and they had another one called the White Pierrot, which was uh, about 30, 35 feet long. The White Pierrot was, happened to be the smallest boat that they took with them but when it all said and done it's the boat they all returned or most of them returned home in they had to build dugout canoes and bull boats which are buffalo hides stretched over willow frames but they came back with the white perot now when you were first talking to me about their trip. You mentioned that they would have a group that went on ahead to do some hunting and things like that. What were some other things that happened that maybe we wouldn't know about uh, along the trip? Most people think that they took the, the at least the keel boat. They'll know about that. And they'll think they took it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. The keel boat, especially the big one, it made it to North Dakota. But then the water started getting too shallow and too crooked. So they left that behind in North Dakota. The Red Pearl, which was smaller, but still they get to uh, the Marias River and they cached that boat. They stashed it. They pulled it up on shore. They dug a hole. They covered it up, hid it, and decided they'd come pick it up on the way back. The White Pearl made it all the way to the Great Falls of the Missouri River. That's where they ran into not just one big giant fall, but five waterfalls all in a row. And so they could not portage that around, so they cached it, they stashed it. And when they get around the river, they end up making uh, more dugout canoes, and they use that to help get all the way up to the uh, the source of the Missouri River. So then they went from there to the coast by walking, by hiking, correct? They did a good bit of hiking. They were, when they met the Shoshone people, which were Sacagawea's people, fascinating story about that was, they took her along because she could speak both Shoshone and Hidatsa. So she grew up Shoshone, and when they found her people, they make deals with them to get horses because they were well known as having a lot of horses. 
But in the parlay with those Shoshones, Sacagawea looked up and screamed and went and covered the chief of the Shoshones with her blanket. It turns out that he was her brother. She'd oh been kidnapped when she was 11 years old, and now she was probably about 16 or 17. It was quite an amazing coincidence that they ran into Sacagawea's people there. And but they did use the horses to get across the mountains. A very hard time getting across a low trail. And then when they got on the other side, they made more dugout canoes over there and traveled down the, the clear water of the Snake and the Columbia Rivers. Now, was her brother surprised? Was Is there anything written about that interaction oh, yeah. that they had? That's covered in the, in the journals by uh, Ca- Captain Clark and Captain Lewis. His name was Kamawea. He'd been chief of the the Shoshones for some time but it's just he they mentioned a joyful and by but they need to get back down to brass tacks and get on with the trading because they were in a hurry because they knew winter was going to be coming on so it was quite a you can imagine Sacagawea jumps up in the middle of negotiations and runs up to the chief and covers him up they don't know what's going on see Sacagawea was part or Sacagawea we say it both ways, don't we? She was part of a translation chain that first started with, say, Captain Lewis would say something in English to one of his men who spoke French. That Frenchman would translate that into French for Charbonneau, Sacagawea's husband. He would translate that into Hidatsa, the people that had captured Sacagawea. Then Sacagawea would understand that. She would translate that into Shoshone. So it took that translation chain to get one sentence out. Then it had to come back that same chain. So it was quite complicated. And and further on, it even goes to another tribe, the Salish, where uh, Sacagawea found a, or the Corps found a Shoshone slave to the Salish people. And the Salish people spoke to the slave and he spoke to Sacagawea and she spoke to Charbonneau and he spoke to the the other Frenchman who spoke English to Captain Clark. So it's quite an arduous process to to say hello. Well, that's very interesting. I never knew that. It sounds like a a huge game of telephone going on there. Yes, exactly. And there were times when the translators would argue over the meanings of words. I can see that. I can see that. Now, as they're mapping this out, were any of those individuals engineers or the type that would know uh, to use reference points in the, in the sky or use physical reference points? How did they go about mapping this entire area of the Louisiana Purchase? They went prepared. Before Lewis started on the trip, he'd gone to Philadelphia and he'd got training from many of the members of the American Philosophical Society, of which Thomas Churchill was president. And he got training on taking latitude and longitude rings with sept- with octants and septants. And so they were doing that at very important places like confluence of rivers, mountains, things like that, what they run into. But that didn't really help on the maps because there's hours of mathematical calculations back then to figure out where you were in relation to the rest of the world. The thing about the maps was that Clark, Captain William Clark, had an eye for longitude, or not longitude, he had an eye for geography. He used dead reckoning on this entire trip, 8,000 miles, and his map was accurate within 4%. He would look ahead and see something and estimate it's a, a certain distance, 
they get to that and go around the corner and he'd estimate the next distance. And so keeping notes was how he made the map that proved to be so accurate, just basically in his head. Wow. Now, Camp River Dubois, how do, what was the origin of Camp River Dubois and what happened there when they left? And then the last final point to that question is, what are you doing over there now? Okay. Lewis and Clark came up the Mississippi River with the keelboat and the, uh, the two Piros, and they wanted to make up camp. Original plan had been for them to go up the Missouri for uh, a bit and get away from the what little towns there were or what little civilization there was here. But when they got here, this was, the transfer had not taken place between France and Spain and the United States. So that was still Spanish territory, and the governor would not allow them to go camp on Spanish territory. The, the Spanish governor would not. So they came to Cahokia, where they met a, a gentleman who had uh, property up here, and they found property directly across the, the uh, river from the entrance of the Missouri into the Mississippi. So they knew that would be a good place. They'd keep an eye on the river, watch, see how things were going. So they, uh, Clark and the men rode up here, pulled into this small creek that uh, fed into the Mississippi River. It was River Dubois, and so they uh, built their camp here. Now, that spot has probably all washed away. The, the uh, rivers have changed so much in the last 200 years. In 1860, there was some floods, and, of course, we know about the 1811-12 earthquake. The Missouri River changed its location where it entered the Mississippi by about three miles. So the the, the confluence of the Missouri-Mississippi uh, right now is three miles south of where it would have been 200 years ago. We are not on the exact location, but we are at the confluence of the Mississippi and Missouri Rivers, which is exactly where they were at the confluence of the Mississippi and Missouri Rivers. Today, we have a, a museum a very fine museum at on the good side of the levee, so we don't get flooded. The, we have, with of course, COVID's affected everything, but uh, we have several events a year, such as the one we're uh, going to miss uh, Saturday, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday this year. It was the departure event, where we have uh, about seven to nine hundred fourth graders come in, and we have reenactors and artisans and people doing crafts of that day and time, and it's really very a very good event. And we have other events uh, during the year, music events and of that time. Right now, the museum is open Tuesday through Sunday, 9 to 5. They're at, we have a capacity of 50 in the building at one time, all the COVID restrictions. But we're hoping, like everybody else, that COVID soon goes away. And Rex, you've been doing this quite a while. My final question is, what was one thing as you were studying this or learning about this that took you by surprise that was like, wow, I didn't even know about that or how, did, how in the world did they do that or something like that? What was that one thing that you had no clue about? I think that impressed, the thing that impressed me the most was the preparation that it took to be successful on this trip. When they returned home, they still had enough gunpowder and writing paper to do the whole trip all over again. They uh, had prepared with a, a lot of things and uh, bought a lot of items. I think the original budget approval was for like $2,500. 
and ended up spending about $34,000, but that's government for you. But they did need everything they got. The biggest expense they had was presents for Native Americans. They were going to places where they had very little contact with the Eastern uh, civilization. And a lot of these people did not have, say, the steel knives or the iron axes or the needles or the glassware or beads. Native Americans especially loved the blue beads because they couldn't make a blue bead out of natural materials. It had to be most of those beads came from France. So I, I think the the preparation, the, the things that went on beforehand, that's just really amazing that they had such foresight to do the things that they did. Rex Maynard, thank you for coming on St. Louis in Tune and giving us some great information about the Lewis and Clark State Historic Site and also about the expedition. There are things that I learned from you in our brief period of time that we've talked about that I've never known about, and it's going to force me to really get back and and look at that expedition a little bit more carefully. Thank you, Rex. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity opportunity to promote the Lewis and Clark site. We're glad you listened to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Please share this podcast or tell a friend. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Strickland.